This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. Today we're going to launch a national campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. The Golden State Killer's first known attack occurred in June of 1976. It was a brutal sexual assault that took place in Rancho Cordova in the eastern portion of Sacramento County. And it's because of that location and his two years terrorizing the Sacramento area that law enforcement originally referred to him as the East Area Rapist. In June of 1976, when the very first assault took place here in Sacramento, I was 12 years old. And it was a time in Sacramento, and for anybody that grew up here, you only need to say three words, and that is the East Area Rapist. And everybody remembers it. And the reason why I think it's so memorable is because it was a time in our community in 1976 when we didn't have cell phones, we didn't lock our doors at night, We rode our bikes around, and the only thing my parents would say at night was, just make sure you're home before dark. And then in June of 1976, that all changed for this community because it was a time when really, in essence, a community was taken hostage. Um, So I come from that perspective as a personal perspective because I know what it did to this community. Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert lived in the Rancho Cordova area of Sacramento with her parents and six siblings during the East Area Rapists' reign of terror. She also spoke at the press conference on June 15, 2016, when law enforcement announced their renewed interest and commitment to identifying and capturing the East Area Rapist, now known as the Golden State Killer. The FBI is also offering a reward of up to $50,000 for information leading to the identification, arrest, and conviction of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer. I'm Joke Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina, and we're the producers behind the HLN documentary Unmasking a Killer, which investigates the unsolved case of the Golden State Killer. Since law enforcement announced their renewed interest and commitment to the case, their investigation has uncovered new leads that could help them bring the offender to justice. One such lead was a newly discovered string of cat burglaries that took place in 1973 in the Cordova Meadows area of Sacramento. Sergeant Paul Belli of the Sacramento Sheriff's Homicide Bureau detailed the find on a recent episode of HLN's Crime and Justice with Ashley Banfield. When we went back and did a burglary analysis uh, dating back to 1972, uh, we recognized that there was a cat burglar that was operating in the same area that the East Area Rapist ended up operating five years later. And in going back and looking at all those 60,000 plus reports uh, throughout the years, we found that many of the, the methods that the cat burglar was utilizing to commit his crimes and doing during his crimes are are very, very similar to what the East Area Rapist was doing and what was documented during his series. Sergeant Belli also explained to Ashley Banfield why he believes the Golden State Killer is still alive. 
Well, he would only be uh, between 65 and 75, uh, based upon descriptions of the uh, the time in which he was offending. The descriptions are anywhere from 20 to uh, approximately 30 years old. So actuarially, uh, he uh, should, certainly, should certainly be alive uh, at this stage in his life. Is it possible that he started and had an M.O., and that got you on his trail, and for 10 years he continued his, his patterns and then changed his patterns, meaning loads and loads of murders since then aren't attributable to him, at least not that we know of? I, I would say that's possible, uh, especially when you consider the fact that DNA was starting to become something that was at least known to people uh, right around 1986, which was the last time of his known offense. Uh, as he moved forward, he could have very easily uh, discovered uh, more information related to that. Because prior to 1986, we had a four and a half, five year gap. So it could have been that he was slowing down uh, and then also uh, is able to learn a little bit more about what it is that he's doing and could have changed a, a variety of things so that we may not necessarily know uh, additional crimes that he has committed. But thanks to the evolution of technology and the fact that we have this offender's DNA, law enforcement is confident that the Golden State Killer will be identified and ultimately brought to justice. Today, Sergeant Detective Ken Clark of the Sacramento Sheriff's Department returns to offer details into the newly discovered string of cat burglaries. We also discuss some of the other popular theories surrounding this case. Welcome back, Ken Clark, Detective Sergeant with the Sacramento Sheriff's Department. For 12 years now, he has worked this case and with dogged determination looked at every angle. In recent weeks, he and his team discovered a series of burglaries in the Sacramento area that he believes are the early work of the Golden State Killer. Ken, thank you very much for being here today, and I'm so excited to explore this new potential lead with you. No, thanks for having me. Good to be back. So setting the stage, we know that the Golden State Killer was active from 1976 to 1978 in Sacramento and committed there a series of burglaries and rapes. Those are the earliest crimes everyone in law enforcement agrees were committed by this offender. Another thing that everyone is in consensus with, including the profilers, is that those were not the offender's first set of crimes. He seemed too proficient in breaking and entering a home, too confident, too prepared for that set of crimes to have been his training ground. With that in mind, knowing he most likely started as a burglar, you started looking through old burglary reports going back to 1972. Tell us what you had hoped to find in there and then what did you find? Yeah. You know, my thought was looking at the offender that comes on the scene here in Sacramento in 76, he has already got some proficiency in burglary. And uh, not that, you know, he's the greatest burglar in the world or there's anything that, that makes him, you know, some kind of, you know, James Bond style burglar. But he did have a talent for getting into homes without people knowing he was there, moving about the home without... um Awaking people, and I'm speaking strictly the EAR crimes right now, not the stuff that I uncovered. So these are all things that uh, are learned behaviors, and they're usually learned by doing versus you know reading about things in a book or talking to your cellmate about successful best practices and burglary. Uh, I think you could have got information that way too, but you you get good at it by doing it, and I think that that is what really kind of got us thinking as we uh, realized all these reports we had that we needed to go back and do a very deep dive into the burglaries, prowls, indecent exposures, 
other sexual assaults, uh, harassing telephone calls, all of those things, and look at it chronologically and get a feel for these neighborhoods uh, at the time it was going on as reflected in the crime reports. And we had wanted to do this project for some years, but the at the time, all of the, the reports we had, and it, it averages between, uh, you know, 35 and 50,000 a year in most of the years of the series. Wow. Um, they were all in microfilm format. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to the public library and decided to check out an old newspaper article, but microfilm is not friendly. <laughs> and it took us about a month. Uh, my partner, uh, Sergeant Paul Belli, and I took a month. And I will tell you, he did the bulk of that, and I don't envy him. But he sat down there at our records uh, headquarters and maybe 300 reports is all he was able to do in a full month in terms of going through these things and and the visuals are so bad it's tough to read the page never quite centers right i mean i can go into problems all night long but i think people that have used it will know what i'm talking about so we for many years have wanted to to figure out a good way to get that volume of reports put into a digital format that we could review right from our desktop so we've had access to that for uh, a couple of years now and it took a little while to get into it and try to come up with a strategy initially i started just of course looking at the month before this crime or that crime in the middle of the series and my hope there was that maybe someone got a license plate or somebody said hey you know chuck from bel-air it was really weird because he doesn't live around here but the guy that bags my groceries happened to park on my street all night and i saw him kind of come back in a hurry that was my hope is there was going to be something like that in these reports but I realized after seeing everything I was reading that I needed to just go back and be methodical and go right to the very, very first report I had, which was 1973-1. Start there, go year by year, take a break after each year, assess where we've been, assess if there, if there are leads that could benefit from public exposure, and then move forward to the next year. So we did that. And when I started in 73, I wasn't even four days into the year, which was represented maybe a thousand reports before I found this burglar that was doing kind of some strange burglaries right in the hot zone of Rancho Cordova that uh, is known as Cordova Meadows, where he initially started. And I was very cautious because, you know, there's a lot of burglaries going on and burglary MO is a little more difficult to pin down and link than a, a sexual assault MO with all of the strangeness that, that this one had uh, in the 76, 78 time frame. So in terms of the Cordova Meadows burglar, how did you feel that series was connected to the East Area Rapist series? Well, it was real clear from the beginning that those cases were not fina uh, financially motivated and... They had some of this feel um, in terms of the, the MO of a, of a careful and methodical burglary where you wanted to stay on scene for a while. You wanted to kind of create countermeasures in case somebody came home and maybe put yourself in a position to get involved with the personal items of the victims versus valuable items of the victims. And that is how these burglaries presented. He is... On some of these, turning off the uh, furnace, which was at the time uh, in the home that, that the or homes that these occurred in were the forced air furnaces that were common in the 70s. They were noisy. Uh, he would unplug those. I think the reasoning is simply that uh, he wants things to be quiet. But uh, again, that's speculation. But we did see that repeat itself in this obsession with, with quiet that the East Area Rapist had. And he actually did manipulate thermostats and did... Uh, control 
in other ways, things like forced air furnaces and air conditioners in order to make the environment more quiet for himself. Uh, so that was one thing we noted. And and the idea of making it more quiet was so they could he could potentially hear people coming so he'd have more time to get out. That's right. I think I mean, that's the that's the simplest explanation. And usually that's that's I think what would be correct in this case. There may have been other motivations. Maybe he got hot on these scenes or something and he, he didn't want it to be hot in the residence. I, it's possible. But um, I think that the best uh, explanation has got to be that he wants things quiet and those things just made too much noise for him to hear if someone had returned home or, you know, a lot of these aren't daytime burglaries. I mean, there's a few that are, but, you know, he's in a, a higher risk category than your normal burglar who comes in the middle of the day, knocks on your front door pretending he's a salesman. Nobody's home. So he slips around back and gets in and they get out real quick. Usually they want to get in. They want to get out. This guy's striking a lot of times in the evening. He's striking at night in both occupied and unoccupied homes. That is risky. I mean, you, you got to expect that at six or seven o'clock in the evening and certainly 11 or 12 at night that the occupants could return home from wherever they are, the grocery store work. Uh, so he wants things to be very quiet, and that's why he, I believe, turns some of this stuff down. You've got uh, dog attacks in these in this series. Uh, expresses itself again in Southern California. He's shown a propensity of cruelty to small animals. Even in the Maggiore murder case, their little poodle winds up in the swimming pool. I personally believe that dog probably wound up in the swimming pool even before Brian and Katie encountered him. And I not sure what what made this guy throw that dog in the pool, but it seems rather uh, unlikely to me that the dog went in on its own. Well, that's so. interesting because part of what we heard from Southern California was that the Golden State Killer sometimes used dogs as decoys while prowling the neighborhood. Like he might be pretending to walk a dog, or you know, there there were words of um, of potential evidence of dog prints at the Manning Offerman crime scene. So do we know for sure if Golden State Killer just uses dogs, kills dogs? Where, where do you stand on it? Most of the time where sightings were involving a dog, my understanding is that it was a larger dog, a larger breed. Mm. I think that that would go into this guy's opinion of power. And uh, again, this is this is completely theoretical here. But my speculation is that big dogs make him feel like a big man. A little dog in the house maybe makes him irritated. Maybe it uh, is more reflective of how he sees himself. And so uh, it angers him. And if he's trying to keep things quiet and he's got a yippy poodle uh, making noise, yeah. uh, the guy, the guy's a psychopath. And frankly, I don't think he cares about animals. And we know from, you know, the studies, I, I think the FBI would back me up on the fact that a lot of times these offenders uh, begin to apply their trade with cruelty to animals. That's the first uh exposure they have to violent behavior uh, on a, a living being or a living creature. So I don't think it was hard at him for all hard for him at all to to dispatch these animals. And, and uh, it's just another sad feature of this case, unfortunately. But that was one of the thing we did look into with these burglaries. He was also opening a rear window of the home and bringing the screen into the house, hmm. uh, laying the screen on the bed. That's unusual behavior. Uh, having an escape route like that, you've come in another door but yet you're leaving an escape route open for yourself. That's unusual. It's not, I mean, I'm not, none of this is mutually exclusive. This is, doesn't say, Hey, this is one guy for sure, because, you know, smart burglars come up with smart strategies and um, put a chain on the front door or block the front door, which we saw in this case as well, several times. 
but it is something when you start taking this together, it suggests something that isn't standard in terms of burglars. And that's wanting to spend a lot of time in a home, which is extraordinarily risky at the times that he's in these homes, especially for the, for what he is getting as a result of this, the satisfaction he's getting would appeal to very few other burglars. He's taking class rings. You can't really fence those, right? You know, these are things that mean something to him because they mean something to the people in the home. Uh, he's taken aftershave lotion. He's taking broken lamps. Um, there's, he takes blue chip stamps. They have some ca- redemption value, but uh, you know, how many of those things you got to steal on a burglary in order to go get yourself uh, you know, free uh, 12 carat plated necklace? I don't right. know. Right. He's not shopping with those. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> right. Now, let me ask you, the new series of burglaries that you discovered from 1973, you actually recognized one of the names in the victims list as a future East Area Rapist victim. She was actually burglarized in 1973. Can you tell us about that incident? Yeah, fairly unremarkable what happened to that home in that uh, it was a burglary, a forced entry deal, nothing of value taken. I suspect something was taken. I just suspect that it wasn't detected. But right next door, another burglary. So odds of a, a burglar doing... You know, two separate burglars doing two separate burgs, same street, one house apart, not very high. This is the same guy. Right. And he takes uh, movie equipment and some coins from that burglary, and he, I mean, including a movie, uh, like a uh, movie camera. And then you jump across the river into Carmichael on the same night, and you've got one of these weirdo burglaries where he's uh, unplugging heaters and unfortunately uh, kills a, a small dog inside the house. And on that case, you've got very strange things taken, uh, nothing of great value. It's a, an aftershave lotion that's in a, a Model A car container that Avon used to sell. He took blue chip stamps, strange jewelry that isn't really fensible. And you, again, you start seeing this pattern. This is all on the same day. Which is also very like the East Area Rapist, who's known to burglarize or sometimes even assault on the same night. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're talking specifically about the Cordova Meadows burglar now. Um, I had uncovered quite a few other cat burglaries uh, as well, where he's doing the same jumping around pattern. And he happens to be in many of the neighborhoods for these cat burglaries that, you know, the East Area Rapist ends up striking uh, later. I don't know if the cat burglar and the Cordova Meadows burglar are the same guy. I know that the descriptions are close. The, the kind of way they're operating is close. Their geographic uh, spread is, is, is close. But the MO factors that are present and needed to accomplish a, a cat burglary are so different than what you need to accomplish for an unoccupied home burglary that I, I just can't say with certainty. So I treat them as two separate series. But my personal opinion, the 50% plus one, if you will, is it's the same guy. No, I think the most exciting part about this is for your Cordova Meadows burglar spree, you have a composite. Yes, That particular burglary uh, series runs through most of 1973. But what we see is that around the springtime, so January to about April, May, we're seeing largely these day, evening and night unoccupied home burglaries, a couple of cat burglaries that are clearly linked to this guy um, based on the geography and the other strikes that are occurring in the area. But then there's a a clear uh, metamorphosis into those burglaries start trailing off 
at the same time that the the weather gets better and around may you start seeing these cat burglaries uh on the increase and these cat burglaries were going on in 1972 and even though i don't have 1972's reports they referred to him in the spring of 73 as the return of the cat burglar that was striking the Rancho Cordova and East areas in 1972. So my best calculation is there was about 15 of these, maybe 20, give or take in 1972. There is a, a cessation of those at some point late in 1972. And then you have them reappearing again with the same MO factors in the spring of 1973. And he ends up committing a total between 72 and 3 of about 32 to 35 cat burglaries. Okay, now let me take a leap here for a second. A theory that is popular with some but not all of law enforcement is that a series of burglaries in Visalia, known as the Visalia Ransacker, between 1974 and 1975, specifically more fetish burglaries that happened there, that that could have been part of the Golden State Killer criminal timeline, so to say. Do you see that fitting with this new Cordova Meadows burglary series or cat burglary series, then Visalia, then potentially coming back to Sacramento for the East Area Rapist series? You know, that's it is very possible. I've uh, I've gone back and forth on the Visalia series um, in my own mind. And the main issue I have with it is a description of the offender down there that just doesn't fully comport with what we see in the 1976 emergence of the East Area Rapist. That said, there's a lot of ways that people can alter their body shape uh, in a fairly short period of time, and I'm talking months. And you add that to the fact that during the East Area Rapist series, there weren't a lot of people that got a really good look at this guy. We have a couple of cases where he does arrive uh, without pants, his description uh, seems to be not a heavy guy, but then we have other cases right there in the series where repeated over and over is this sensation and visual appearance of heavy legs. And I find heavy legs to just be a strange way to describe somebody. Right. And so to me, it's like the person who is using that descriptor and not trying to get into a witness's head, but it meant something to them. There is a sensation that these legs are a little larger probably for a variety of explanations, but the legs are larger. And because of that, it has an effect on the way that the upper body is then viewed. So you go to Visalia and you've got some of these potential sightings of what they believe to be the ransacker burglar and are equating with this prowler that was working the neighborhood. And again, I don't know how closely they linked that. The ransacker was a burglar and then you've got a prowler. Are they the same guy? I don't know. But I believe that, that certainly Visalia law enforcement thought that he was and the things that I've read do nothing but, but reinforce that. But in looking at Visalia, I think that the million dollar question is, does pre-EAR style attacks continue at a regular interval here in Sacramento into 74 and especially spring of 74 and on through certainly September of 75, when we, we start to see the Visalia Ransacker cases begin uh, winding down. I wouldn't bet money against it. And at this point, I am very open-minded that those two could be one and the same. There's plenty of reason to believe based on the MO that they're similar. Plenty of reason based on some of the descriptions to think that they may not be. But 
it's definitely similar. Yeah, I mean, just even looking at the, the list of items stolen from blue chip stamps to the single earrings from pairs to, you know, pictures of, of female occupants, there seems to be a lot in common. And, you know, I got to read the police report of the night of the Claude Snelling murder. And the first description Beth Snelling gives to Visalia Police Department is not that necessarily of this large man. And and I do think that there's been some some kind of um, I don't want to say confusion, but, you know, that one composite seems to divide law enforcement on whether or not the ransacker series is connected. And obviously the McGowan description describing him as someone looking like a high school kid where, you know, your Cordova Meadows burglar is is looking a little older and potentially the East Area Rapist might have been a little bit older. There's things that obviously we don't know. But it is interesting how many of the details of these burglaries do match up. Yeah, absolutely. And the MO factors are very similar as well. And I've actually never been real hung up on the composite that Visalia produced. And the reason I say that is I, I don't think that it is wholly inconsistent with some of what was produced here. These people got a very brief glimpse of the offender. There was some that got better looks than others. And there is a sensation that, that he's a baby-faced guy, maybe a little bit round-faced. But... You know, it's it's real tough when you're talking about witness uh, descriptions. I've investigated uh, probably well over 150 homicides in my time here, and witness descriptions are just not reliable. We look for a current. We look for a general theme, if you will, when you're talking about descriptions versus, uh, oh, well, this person said he had a mark right here on this particular spot on his you know, left arm or something like that. I mean, tattoo, yeah, but... When you start looking at descriptions, they can really vary. Uh, height can vary. Weight perceptions can vary. And real frequently in these reports, you see where they describe the guy as uh, stocky built or or chubby. And then they go on to say he's five foot ten and 170 pounds. Right. Well, <laughs> five foot ten, 170 is not a chubby individual, depending on how that is, uh, how that weight is distributed on the body. What I think it may well be here is that this individual has a body shape that for whatever reason de-emphasizes the upper portion of his body in relation to the lower portion of his body, and that is causing maybe some of the confusion. So I don't dismiss Visalia at all based on description. Um, I don't dismiss it at all based on MO because, as you pointed out, it, it is very similar. And could we have a guy that decides, hey, the going is, is a little rough now in, in Sacramento. Uh, we have the Sardaway attack where it's clearly an aborted attack. Through the remainder of the year, I'm not seeing the heavy prowler activity. I'm not seeing the cat burglaries. Maybe this was a go and gets tough. I'm getting going type thing, which we know he did. So could he have gone down to Visalia, uh, lived with uh, grandpa or, you know, gone down there for any number of reasons because he feels threatened here? Yes, he could. And the Visalia descriptors as well on age are not that of a 16 to 20 year old male. If you, if you look at the general, the feel of it, these people are describing him as really 25 to 35. So I think again, we're in that mid twenties, uh, range for general descriptors of the ransacker. And I think that a lot of the, certainly the cat burglar and, um, uh, they didn't get good looks at him, but with EAR, you get that feeling that he's potentially in his twenties. I would go maybe a range of anywhere from 2021 20, up to 30. I think that all those are well within uh, uh, consideration. 
So the 73 Cordova Meadows burglar, uh, 1973 incident there, maybe it gets too hot. He slows down. Maybe he moves to Visalia. We know the ransacker after the McGowan shooting in December of 55, things got too hot and he left Visalia there. Maybe coming back up to Sacramento if it's the same person. We know after the majority's double homicide, things get too hot in Sacramento and he leaves there. So if this is all the same guy, we find him in Contra Costa County. And one of the theories that we talk about in the show is whether or not he kept moving with his crimes or whether he stayed in Sacramento. Larry Crompton, retired Contra Costa detective, floating the theory that the offender was stealing things like a lamp or silverware, other household type items that seem to suggest he might be setting up house, where Paul Holes shares his belief that the Golden State Killer stayed put in Sacramento and kept traveling to those crime scenes since they seem to be all along big, you know, roads and, and freeways. Where do you stand on this theory of of the Golden State Killer living in Sacramento or moving to the areas where the crimes are being committed? You know, I stand safely right in the middle of <laughs> I think that he I think that he probably was home based here in Sacramento, and I believe that has been the case throughout the the series. So Either his family, uh, primary residence, or something to that effect is here in Sacramento, and as far as I'm concerned, may very well still be. But that said, I think that he is probably getting temporary housing in some of these other areas, and that it's likely uh, related to employment or some other factor in his life. There's an anchor point there for him that isn't just uh, random travel. So. Could he be working uh, jobs that uh, maybe he's staying in uh, motels? Uh, could he be involved in uh, the shipping industry, trucking? And so he has the ability to, to move through some of these towns. Maybe he changes jobs a half a dozen times throughout this series if he's working at all. So I do believe that while Sack's the home base, I think he has got some temporary residency in some of these other areas. I just don't think it's permanent. And I think it allows him mobility, but he kind of keeps coming back to Sacramento, especially uh, afterwards when he, he feels like things have died down a bit here. Right. And, you know, I think what's pretty interesting, because clearly, you know, this guy was studying up on what he was doing. And I want to ask you a question about the so-called homework evidence. You know, to quickly recap, for those who don't know, at one of the attacks in Northern California, there were three sheets of notebook paper uh, that were found by the offender's path of escape. One of those pieces of paper has a detailed drawing of what seems to be a construction development leading many to believe, you know, he may have worked in construction. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think uh, any of the construction trade angles are are well worth exploring. And when we do look at people in this case and we go through a triage process with suspects and we assign kind of some, you know, points to certain traits and certain things. And construction is something that we give some points to because, we have evidence on our scenes here, and there's evidence also uh, in other jurisdictions. He's got some possibility of being involved in trades where paint from a commercial sprayer was being uh, employed. So, again, commercial sprayers were not as available as they are now, but they weren't impossible to get. I'm not suggesting that you couldn't paint your house with a commercial sprayer in 1977, but they, they weren't as common as they are now. And so when you start seeing that type of thing present on a crime scene, you have to wonder if this guy has a tie to some job site where that type of paint spray is being used. And the, the particles were 
microparticles. They were architectural paint, so it would be more involved in, in the housing industry than certainly pipe fitting or anything like that or automotive. So I think the construction trades is a real good angle. And if he's if he's there in the Bay Area with some something to do with that, that would make a lot of sense. Does it rate higher or lower than the medical or military theories? I'd say higher. I uh, and that's just personal opinion. I don't I don't exclude anybody uh, based on personal opinions. We give everybody a a really hard look, and I try not to inject my bias into into any of the subjects we look at. But I don't believe that this guy uh, was in the military, and if he was, I, I don't think he was in very long. And you know that's been an evolutionary thought on my part. I was convinced when I first read this case. I, Hey, all we got to do is figure mm-hmm. out who was on Mather Air Force Base Act and where do we got this guy? You know, that's a, you go through the uh, the easiest things first. And that was kind of my first blush on the case when I read it. But now I, I don't believe that. I think that, that there's aspects of the crimes that I don't believe would have let this guy have a real successful military career. The amount of time he's spending in the field uh, seems like it would cause problems on the job. Not impossible, but in my mind, either had an unsuccessful uh, career in the military or he likely wasn't in at all. Yeah. In terms of the medical field, there's a lot of victims that have uh, medical ties. I don't know if that indicates an animosity towards that field uh, for a variety of reasons that are possible in terms of uh, you know anger that people get when uh, there's a, a medical concern that they don't feel was adequately addressed or something to that effect. Uh, I don't know. But if he did work in the medical field, I would think that it would be in a in a capacity that probably wouldn't require a lot of formal education, maybe work in the facilities or, or maintenance or something to that effect where he can uh, operate a little more freely than than he would uh, be able to if he was a, a nurse or a doctor. Right. And then from 1981 to 1986, we don't have any crimes associated with the Golden State Killer. There was that five-year absence where some people thought maybe he was stationed overseas in the military, but mostly people thought maybe he was incarcerated. What are your thoughts on this this kind of five-year dry period? Well, it wouldn't surprise me if there are some undetected cases, uh, either in the state of California or uh, outside the state of California, you know, that he's responsible for that really make the five-year gap a bit of an illusion. That said, we have... Uh, checked with other jurisdictions as best as we're able, and we haven't found that crime or crimes at this point. I would say that by 1981, whether he commits anything before 86 or not, for whatever reason, he he is slowing down. Um, the crimes are beginning to space out more. You know, I think these guys, uh, as they age, they just, they, they run out of some of the gusto they once had, and maybe nothing uh, thrills them anymore, and they turn to something else. In the Unmasking a Killer documentary, we also talk about the phone call that the offender made in 1982 to one of his former sexual assault victims at her place of work, Denny's. Now, the last known murder before this five-year absence was the Domingo Sanchez murder in Goleta, in which the Golden State Killer is believed to have gotten hurt in his confrontations with Greg Sanchez. This phone call to Denny's, combined with the theory that her offender may have been hurt in the Greg Sanchez encounter, do you believe that an injury could be a possible explanation for the Golden State Killer's five-year drought? Yeah, um, there's a reason he slowed down. We don't know what it is. But as I said earlier, I believe Sacramento is home base. I believe that it may well be where he lives now. And that is not surprising to me at all that he would call a previous victim, uh, even in the middle of this uh, kind of offense drought, if you will. 
And so the 1982 call to me just adds to the fact that he must have seen this victim. And when she is at work and receives this call, he is somewhere nearby or somewhere where he can observe her reaction because that is, again, a, a, a thrill for him. And, you know, when you surface like that, you got to put your head back down. And I think that's exactly what he did. Yeah, that's so scary. Let me ask you, Ken, in, in your opinion, is this guy still alive? You know, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's no reason to believe he isn't. Uh, it's not like we're looking for a 90-year-old offender or, you know, looking for Jack the Ripper here. I think that this guy, I'm, I'm almost 50. I turned 50 this year. He's probably somewhere between 10 and 20 years older than me. And I know lots of people that are 10 and 20 years older than me. So I don't know why it would be prudent for law enforcement to uh, just figure, oh, well, he's probably passed on because he's 65. Well, that's when they start, uh, you know, giving you Social Security. And we all know that they're real worried about the system busting because everyone's living so far beyond 65. So actuarially speaking, he should still be alive. Is he? I don't know. What would it mean to you to have the Golden State Killer finally identified? Oh, it'd be fantastic. I, uh, you know, I have obviously would love to to hear what he has to say. I'd love to know about some of the things that that we, uh, I suspect he has done that we don't know about. It would mean a lot for uh, people to be able to put a face to what I would probably guess is going to be someone much less frightening without his little uh, cute little ski mask on than uh, he probably looked on the crime scenes. And I think that would be uh, something people would uh, would benefit from. I think it's also a great warning to anybody who thinks that these types of things are, are good behaviors and they can get away with it, that this guy was probably one of uh, the best and one of the luckiest that we'd seen in, uh, in California and probably the nation and still managed to get him. Till we do, it's all talk. And, uh, you know, we have uh, fun with our you know, debating among detectives on various things. And uh, frankly, I debate in my head, uh, right brain and left brain on whether is this guy 20 or is this guy 35, you know, so till then, we just won't know. Ken, thank you again so much for your time. Um, I always say I was infected by this case, but I can't begin to understand what you and the other investigators who are living this every day are going through. Thank you for the work. Thank you for the continued determination to identify the Golden State Killer. Thank you for sharing your insight with us today. Really appreciate you being here. You bet. Thank you for having me, and uh, we'll look forward to talking again. The Unmasking a Killer documentary and this podcast have generated many questions from people just discovering the case. So before we conclude our special companion podcast series, we'll answer a few of the questions we're most commonly asked. Producing the Unmasking a Killer series and this companion podcast, we've received questions from many of you. Now we will do our best to answer a few that have come up most frequently. All right, Joke. So Brian and Katie Majori were walking their dog when they were brutally murdered. Do we know what happened to the dog? Yes, the dog was a miniature silver gray poodle named Thumper. And actually, Katie had only received a dog just a few months earlier at Christmas. Um, the dog was scarred uh, and was found shivering in the pool, was pulled out by law enforcement. And the family, Katie's family, was actually told by a reporter that the dog was at an animal shelter. And they asked the reporter to make sure that they would be able to go pick it up. Was there DNA recovered in each of the jurisdictions? 
the DNA gets a little confusing sometimes in this case because there's so much. But technically, yes, DNA was recovered in each of the jurisdictions at the time of the crime. However, because rape had a statute of limitations of three years, many of the rape kits were destroyed. So Sacramento County doesn't have any DNA anymore linking to this case. Contra Costa County has those three rape kits that Paul Holes found As for the murders, we know that Santa Barbara County has DNA because of Domingo Sanchez homicide. Ventura County has DNA because of the Charlene and Lyman Smith homicide. And Orange County has DNA because of the Harrington double homicide, the Manuela Withune, and the Janelle Cruz homicide. With GSK traveling to Southern California, he hits Santa Barbara County, Ventura County, then skips Los Angeles County and attacks several times in Orange County. Is there a reason he skipped Los Angeles? That's a great question. The truth is we don't know if he skipped Los Angeles. He's assumed to because so far no cases have been attributed to him in Los Angeles County. But there could have been some. If he did skip it, it could be because Los Angeles was considered a bigger metropolitan area. Maybe he assumed there would be more pressure from law enforcement or police. It'd be harder for him to hide or get away. But again, we can't say for sure that he skipped it. We just know that at this time, no crimes in Los Angeles County have been attributed to him. The knots he used to tie up his victims were very specific. Where could he learn to tie these kind of knots? Yeah, the knots have been a big question for a lot of people. The diamond knot became kind of this lead that people kept investigating. The truth of the matter is, as the profilers state, that the knots were more elaborate than they had to be for the purpose of just binding people up. But a lot of those knots can be found in Boy Scout handbooks. So it wasn't that the knots themselves were so unique and only one you know, specific profession used them or not. So while they were specific and more elaborate than they had to be, they weren't as unique as to be able to lead to the identification of the offender. What about the stolen IDs? Were they ever used? So part of the trophies and part of the things that this offender would take from the homes included some driver's licenses. You know, they're just trophies that he has. Profilers believe he he would still have them if he's alive. So if you are buying a piece of furniture at a swap meet or a yard sale and you find a 1970s Sacramento driver's license that doesn't quite seem to belong, by all means, call the FBI tip line. Um, they are hoping that some of these trophies show up and then are able to backtrack it to the offender. Solving the case of the Golden State Killer is important to a lot of people. It is important to the original task force members, as well as the current dedicated officers who continue the relentless work in pursuing this criminal. But it's also crucial for the victims and families to finally get some answers. So again, if you have any information about the Golden State Killer, you can call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That is 1-800-225-225. 5324 or submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. And if you're interested in watching HLN's Unmasking a Killer documentary series, you can stream it anytime on demand with CNN Go. And the entire companion podcast series is also available at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joke Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.